Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Seek Outside podcast. Today's guest is Joel Webster. Joel is the Vice President of Western Conservation for the Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership. We talk all things conservation, and I hope you enjoy our podcast today with Joel Webster. You have kids, right, Joel? I have a daughter, yeah. You know, I was camping in New Mexico a couple weeks ago at this spot that was a cosmic campground. It was about 70 miles from anywhere. There was no light except the people next to me, right? They they came in with kids, right? And um, kids were like honking the horn, turning on lights, all this stuff. These people finally abandoned I talked to the dude a little bit, right? He's a nice guy. Um, and he literally was yelling when he left. Yeah, and it was like, in this place like 70 miles from like almost nowhere right and he was like i'll see you later man and i thought that must be how most parents that have kids sound really especially when you put them out in some really quiet place i believe it was as a person who you know loves to backpack right and go camp when there's nobody else um you know i find myself with a family car camping more and more i like to backpack i still get out and backpack but i do more car camping than i think i have in years and it's a bit of a startling experience to um be in a place where there's so many different people making a lot of noise until like 10 o'clock i'm just not used to it it's not it's a different you know you need to you're not going there to get some peace of quiet that's for sure and it sounds similar to what you're experiencing yeah exactly so it, it was an interesting night, but I, I was just like, wow. I was probably the same way when my kids were three or four. People were probably like, wow, why are these people yelling at this campground? Yeah. You know, we probably sounded like the Costanzas. <laughs> yeah. Angie, um, why can't you get the, where's the hot dogs? <laughs> anyway, let's um, get on topic, sorry. <laughs> so, so Joel Webster's on um, back on our podcast. Uh, Joel is the vice president of Western Conservation for the Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership. Um, you had sent us a bunch of notes, kind of in, in an overview of maybe things we could talk about today. Um, Joel, I think for as far as conservation goes, and in 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 what's happening, maybe a, an overview of the last administration, like the last four years, like what, what was accomplished or not accomplished uh, in the last four years? Yeah, and, I, and, and thanks, Dennis. Um, I mean, just a quick primer, right, um, you know, to, to public lands. So there's 640 million acres of public lands in the United States, uh, federally managed public lands and those are managed you know overseen by the department of the interior which you know controls like the bureau of land management the fish and wildlife service the park service as well as some other agencies and then on the department of agriculture side you've got the forest service um which is a you know the national forests and grasslands and um this is a pretty interesting time right now because you know as everybody knows we've just um you know, transferred from one administration to another. And, and these times are generally pretty messy the first few months um, of a transition. But I feel like the, uh, the timing of this podcast is, is, is pretty perfect because I think things are starting to take, take shape with uh, you know, the Biden-Harris administration. So it's a good time. But, but looking back to um, you know, the, the Trump administration and, and federal lands management, um, you know, there was a very strong focus or high priority for energy development, most likely mostly tied to oil and gas, right? So there was this mantra that that the Department of the Interior had called energy dominance. And so as a result, there was a real push to, you know, open areas up for oil and gas leasing and development, um, which, you know, had, you know, potential real consequences for, you know, places that people like to hunt and fish, as well as fish and wildlife habitat. Um, so that's sort of the one I guess you could you could say that's sort of a negative side, you know, to the the previous administration. But then also there were some some good things that um, they brought to the table. I mean, they were really good about public access and recreational shooting. Um, 
they uh, they did a lot of work on on expanding hunting and fishing opportunities on on national wildlife refuges. Um, they also you know helped pioneer some work on on big game migration corridors where uh, GPS collar technology has enabled you know scientists to know within 10 feet um, where like deer and elk and pronghorn and bighorn sheep are on the landscape. And so as a result, um, they helped you know support funding um, for the research and the mapping of big game migration corridors, as well as doing habitat projects. And so that's really um, in a very boiled down version, you know, some of the, the things that um, the previous administration was focused on. And then, you know, on January 20th, uh, just a couple of months ago, you know, we um, entered, you know, the Biden-Harris um, you know, period of time. And so, you know, now they're laying out their priorities that we're going to be um, sort of working within, I guess you could say, in the next, you know, four years, at least. Yeah. And, and one of those um, that you had made a note of as far as like the Biden-Harris and maybe what's going to happen in the next four years um, is this this 30 by 30 initiative um, that I think I saw some headlines on. Um, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, it, it's protecting 30% of land and water by the year 2030, like That's public right. lands and waters. Is that right? Yes, sir. Um, and, and so the, and this is something that I imagine, you know, a lot of your listeners have heard about. If you haven't, it's worth, you know, doing a quick Google search, but, you know, there's an initiative out there to, as you said, protect 30% of lands and waters by the year 2030. And the idea behind this is in order to, you know, maintain biodiversity um, in the face of climate change that eventually 50%, um, you know, by 2050 actually is what folks are saying needs to be um, protected in order to maintain that, that biodiversity. And so there's a, a current initiative to um, protect, you know, 30% by 2030. Um, you know, I think, you know, America's 40 million hunters and anglers, obviously we depend on um, you know, healthy fish and wildlife habitat in order to pursue our outdoor activities, right? We need to have, um, you know, functioning, healthy fish and wildlife habitat to have abundant deer and elk herds and to have fisheries that we can then, um, you know, go and enjoy through, through hunting and fishing. But the real sort of, um, I think the thing with 30 by 30 is like the devil's in the details. And um, I think in order for, I guess, it to be, viewed as a success and something that our community can embrace, I think that there's really two pieces to it. I mean, first is process. Um, if I go back, let me just actually back up real quick. You know, this is something that um, the president signed an executive order back at the end of January that directed the federal agencies, so like the Department of the Interior, to um, identify how they were going to work to achieve these goals. And so this is something that the president himself has actually endorsed. Um, but I think in, in order for in order for it to be successful from the perspective of hunters and anglers, like um, from a process perspective, like we need to be at the table, right? Um, you know, hunters and anglers need to be at the table so we can help shape um, what this looks like to make sure it's done in a way that um, recognize hunting and fishing as um, you know compatible and, and a part of the solution, right? That that those activities you know can continue on those lines, but that also um, looking at the outcomes, like what does management look like, and what do protections actually look like, and um, you know I think it's important that um, you know habitat functions, so you know the ability of the landscape to support fish and wildlife herds um, is a really important piece of this. If you look at winter range, it's not just about locking it up from development. It also includes, you know, sort of restoration and enhancement in order to make sure that it functions in terms of supporting deer and elk herds. And so, um, it's really important that, you know, our community have a seat at the table, you know, with this initiative and, um, and that the outcomes include, uh, the kinds of things, you know, the management on the ground that we care about. And I know that, you know, I mean, I like hunting in wilderness. I know a lot of folks like hunting in wilderness. It's important, but there's other tools out there. Um, and some require, you know, more active restoration in order to sustain fish and wildlife. And we want to make sure that that, that stuff's on the table. And so it's something that um, we're actually involved with this process through an effort called Hunt Fish 30 by 30. Uh, it's a, it's a, if you look online, you can do a Google search, you'll find it. 
Um, it's actually a, you know, a sort of a, I guess a micro campaign or a micro site anyway online, but a bunch of groups working together um, to make sure that, that we're involved in this. And the Congressional Sportsman's Foundation, you know, Pheasants Forever, Quail Forever, and several other organizations um, are a part of that, making sure that we have a seat at the table and that, um, you know, where this heads, um, that our communities, you know, being considered and and that we're not left behind. And And, and this goes back to what I said earlier about uh, just these, these changes in administrations, how uh, it's kind of messy at first because you'll have, you know, a president that endorses something, but it's not really clear what it means yet. And so we're working now to make sure that what it means is that um, the interests of the hunting and fishing community are, are taken care of and that we're a part of the solution and that um, we benefit from it. It doesn't become something that we see as threatening. So if we were to take a wag on it right now, I mean, where are we? in respect to 30 by 30 are we at like 17 percent and 15 percent or are we at like 28 and 24 and by protecting do they mean like um that they're going to be wilderness or are they going to be national forests they're going to be something else state parks or what that's a really good question and so Initially, so what they, the folks who've been talking about, you know, this 30 by 30 initiative have been looking at the U.S. geological surveys. Um, this is really in the weeds, but the U.S. geological survey, which is a federal agency, um, they have like a protected area database and it has several different, what they call gap statuses. And I'm not recalling off the top of my head what that actually stands for, but um, there's like a gap status one, a gap status two, a gap status three, and so forth. And what those do is they sort of, they look at different land categories. And um, gap status one and gap status two, which includes things like wilderness, like wilderness study areas, like national monuments, um, including conservation easements on private land. Those, according to the USGS, that it counts for about 12%, um, I think it's of lands in the United States that are currently you know, protected. However, there's also this gap three category that um, has sort of a next level of conservation safeguards. And what, you know, one thing we've been looking at is like some of those lands should count. Um, you know, it could be a habitat management area, for example, on BLM land, where the BLM manages a specific area for, you know, mule deer winter range, and they've got management prescriptions in place that protect that resource, as well as allowing for some, you know, restorative activities, right? So in our minds, that should count. Um, and that stuff's being figured out right now. Uh, like, what is going to count? Um, you know, how are they going to get there in terms of defining what counts and what doesn't? And so that's something that I think the federal agencies are currently looking at. It's not resolved, and, and that's why we, TRCP, as well as many other organizations, are involved to make sure that the management tools that um, we think are important are included in this, um, and, and that also that our you know, activities are, are included in well to make sure, as well to make sure you know, hunting and fishing you know, can continue in protected areas as they look to potentially you know, add new ones. Um, but it's not entirely clear yet um, you know, what all is going to count. And we want to make sure that, you know, places that sort of management tools that are important to hunters and anglers that do provide real value on the ground, that those, those are a part of it. So, so is it possible if they, because they don't know how they're going to count it, is it possible that we're really close to 30% or vice versa? Like we're really far away from 30%, right? Depending on how they. They'll, yeah. I mean, there's a range there depending on how you count it. I think we end up somewhere in the twenties. Um, once it's all said and done, but that's just. So things like conservation easement, would they count? Yeah, they would on private, but, you know, beyond that, um, I mean, we'll kind of, you know, there's a lot of discussion about the practices too. And, you know, you can protect an area from subdivision, but how is that private land being managed? Um, to support biodiversity. And so that stuff matters too. And I'm not, you know, a private land expert. 
I do know that the landowner community is similarly involved in this to make sure that, um, you know, that whatever sort of counts is 30 by 30, that it's something, it's done in a way that they can live with and they can support, right? So voluntary type um, incentives for landowners to, to do things that are good for fish and wildlife. Um, they could have, you know, I don't want to sort of get into this too deep where I'm sort of being dangerous and talking about things I don't understand completely because I'm not involved that's what in you're the, here, that. The, that's what you're here for, Joe. That's what dangerous. I'm here for. Yeah. But, I mean, the private landowners are at the table to make sure that tools are in the toolbox that private landowners see as advantageous that benefit their bottom line, right? Because, you know, private landowners have to make a living on the landscape. And so, um, but there are things that can be done on private lands to do, you know, to support fish and wildlife habitat, to support biodiversity. And, and how do we, how can those tools be designed in a way that, that benefits those landowners? And, and I'm going to bounce around a little bit, uh, again, in the notes that you gave me, but it seems like this is a good spot to talk um, kind of the CRP or the conservation reserve programs for those, for those private landowners. Is, is that kind of what you're getting at there? I mean, that's a part of it. Um, you know, I think anybody who hunts pheasants, right, is probably benefited from the conservation reserve program, which is a, a farm bill program um, where, you know, landowners um, sort of go into an agreement with the Natural Resource Conservation Service to um, basically plant perennial grasses and, and I think some forbs on um, their you know, private holdings for like a 10 to 15 year term. Um, they're then, you know, sort of paid, um, you know, a yearly amount to basically, you know, sort of rent that land from a conservation perspective. And, and, uh, and so those lands are, are sort of like banked um, in perennial grasses, which is super important when you look at, you know, upland bird nesting habitat, as well as cover. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, I know like pheasants, you know, they, they rely on corn um, for food, but they need to be able to nest um, and, uh, and also find cover, especially, you know, after that corn's been harvested. And so um, super important for, you know, for producing birds, but also, you know, white-tailed deer, turkeys, other, you know, pollinators, other species that we don't hunt and fish. Um, you know, that program, um, I think all that stuff's in the mix for 30 by 30. I'm not exactly sure on the private land side, you know, what's in, what would be in and what, what, what would be out. But I think it's super important um, from a conservation perspective. But, you know, under the, the Trump administration, um, there wasn't a real... Um, heartfelt effort, I guess, to, you know, sort of sign people up for the Conservation Reserve Program. And so right now, mm -hmm. um, the number of acres enrolled in CRP is the lowest it's been since 1987. So there's under 22 million acres enrolled in the country. Um, the high in that program was, uh, you know, 36 million acres in 2007. So it's really dropped off. Um, and the real risk there is... What's that? I'm sorry. Uh, doesn't Pheasant Forever have a uh, big initiative too for uh, putting like 500 million or something into restoring habitat at this moment or something as well? I think I saw that in passing somewhere. Um, I don't know, Kevin, <laughs> but it you sounds like a great initiative. <laughs> yeah, it was. They, it was they like, are very you know, involved. They are very involved in CRP and a real leader on that. Um, and they're and they're a great group. Um, I can look into that though. I'll follow up on that. Yeah. That's something we could we could maybe look here while we're on you know the podcast and circle back around yeah. to it. My bird dog will get behind that initiative. Yeah. You know. Um, but I do know that. I mean, the real risk is that if if the money's not used, so the farm bill, you know, sort of a re, it's a recurring authorization, and if you don't use the money, Congress is going to be like, well, you're not that program mustn't be important. You've got too much money, so the next farm bill comes around, we're going to decrease the amount of money you're getting. And, um, and, and so I know that there's a real push to um, try and get as you know, acres signed up, as, as many acres signed up as possible, um, in as short of order as possible. And so I, I know that the, the Biden administration just um, you know, ex extended the en enrollment period 
um, to make it so additional farmers can sign up. But they also have a lot of you know tools at their disposal to um, you know sweeten the pot to make it uh, more attractive to to private landowners, such as having like a you know a sign up bonus where if you sign up you get you know additional um, uh, additional resources and they they also could could offer higher rental rates too um, you know for those lands and so hopefully they're able to to turn that around but that's something that you know we really appreciate um, you know them doing right out of the gate they they get the value of that program um, and hopefully we can turn it around and increase the acres um, that are enrolled in CRP and so that way we can I mean it's not only important from a fish and wildlife perspective a clean water perspective but also you know that we can continue to have this program over the long term because if you don't have crp you're not we just don't have the pheasants especially when you go back you know to, to the dakotas and the midwestern states that they really just you know produce birds and, and here's what i got on february okay. 25th pheasants forever and quail forever announced the call of uplands comprehensive campaign to raise 500 million to improve 9 million acres of upland habitat and introduce 1.5 million new people to the uplands and permanently protect 75,000 acres of land. Well, there you go. That sounds great. Good for them. Yes, it does. Um, so uh, circling back a little, a, a little bit. Um, so you got the CRP. There, there was also right in the the Trump administration. There or during that period, they were able to get through kind of the the LWCF or Land and Water Conservation Fund. Um, well, what does that mean for kind of the, the Biden Harris? You know, what does that mean for the next four years? Are they working on where the money's going? Who gets what? Like, how's that playing out? Yeah, really good question, Dennis. And you know, the Land and Water Conservation Fund is a is a program that's funded through offshore oil and gas development so the the royalties that come off of that um go back into outdoor recreation and conservation and so it's um it's kind of a cool thing it's kind of like almost like a syntax in a way like if you smoke you sort of your taxes go to healthcare, right um mm-hmm. and uh and so the, the program you know since it's inception in 1964 has only been you know fully funded had only been fully funded a couple of years the rest of the time had been um you know really underfunded and and so last august um the great american outdoors act was passed that um as part of it you know fully and permanently funded the land and water conservation fund at 900 million dollars a year which you compare it to past years. I mean, it's pretty rare that the program was even funded at half of that. Mm. And and so this is the program that's used to acquire public lands, um, you know, where there's important fish and wildlife habitat from a conservation perspective. So if you've got like an inholding um, on your national forest that comes up like a stream or whatever, you know, like a big willow bottom, that's super important, um, but also has you know some risk of being subdivided. Um, the program can be used to acquire those lands. It's also got a permanent um, set aside for recreational access where um, at least 3% of the program must be used annually, can be more than this too, um, to acquire access to where it's currently limited or non-existent. And um, it's, you know, if you look at, you know, landlocked public lands, right, um, there's 16.43 million acres of landlocked lands in 22 Western states that you know trcp in partnership with onyx is identified not western states states across the country um and and that that set aside money can be used specifically for unlocking those lands there's also places where um you know access is just tough right you've got a big chunk of public land there's only one access point on one side and you've got to you know go 20 miles to to get to the next access point and um mm-hmm. and where an additional access sort of you know point on that land would be really helpful and so that that money can be used for that and so what um you know, we're expecting to see, I mean, first off, um, you know, we want to make sure that that access money um, provides real additional value and that the agencies are using it strategically. Um, we also want to make sure that, you know, there's, there's projects in the pipeline to, um, you know, for these acquisition projects. And so um, the, the agencies are able to conserve and, and acquire that, that important habitat and those important, you know, holdings that, that really, you know, make management 
efficiencies, but also it's just in the best of the public interest. And so we're hopeful that, um, you know, if, if you have an agency that's doubled the amount of money that they're getting, like there's a capacity issue there, right? Um, where they're probably not staffed up. They, they don't have the training to deal with, um, you know, so many acquisition projects. And so uh, one of the things we've been been talking about with staff is just the need to, um, you know, really make sure that they've got the capacity and the training to to complete the projects, but they've also got the guidance to make sure that these individual projects are doing the most amount of good possible and that they're using the, the making the best use of the money, both from an access and a habitat perspective. And I can't think of a better program on public lands in terms of benefiting hunters and anglers um, just from an access and a habitat perspective. Hmm. When you talk about access and, and, you know, that large number of, of landlocked lands that that you and on that TRCP and Onyx kind of um, pioneered to put a report out on. Um, well, what's the best player? I'm sure it differs amongst each land parcel, but is it mainly easements to get into that land? Is that is that typically what happens in those cases, or is it a a transfer of land, right, where you, where you trade a forty for a forty or or something like that? You know, easements are an option with the land and water conservation fund and they're an important tool to have in the box where basically the agency purchases a narrow corridor across private land to create a road connecting a highway to that public land um but but generally through lwcf they're actually acquiring um the land and then conveying it to the federal agency and so um, it could be a small parcel though if you're just doing it from an access perspective and maybe you've got a chunk of landlocked like a seven thousand acre parcel of BLM land that is 200 yards from an existing public road. In that case, I mean, you could probably buy 20 or 40 acres and connect that into an existing road system and make those lands accessible. So it doesn't need to be a large acquisition project. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, sometimes though, like I know that there's a project currently up for comment um, in Montana that I think it's an 11,000 acre acquisition. Um, oh. but Throughout it is all this BLM land, and it, it would open up like a 6,000-acre landlocked parcel plus a state section, and it would sew together all of these individual BLM parcels. So it's like this ranch that sort of um, it was intermingled in its entirety with BLM lands, and it basically through so that one acquisition, you're 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 blocking up all of those existing public lands. And so there's big projects like that too that. That have an access benefit, but that's also going to do great things. And that's outside of the, the muscle shell um, near the Missouri breaks. I think it's in hunting district 417 in Montana. So, um, you know, that's great, you know, elk hunting area for, for archery as well as rifles. So um, super, super important acquisition opportunity there, but that's a big one. Hmm. How is, um, um, I don't, I don't want to change off topic too much, but um how is what's going on in Montana at a state level going to affect that? Some of those acquisitions and all this new land that people. Find? So, are you referring to what's happening with the legislature? Yes. Yeah, I mean, Kevin, there's a whole slew of bills that are currently up for consideration in the legislature. You know, one that um would have um taken i think about 40 percent of non-resident tags and um guaranteed those to outfitters that bill this is my understanding of where it's currently at and keep in mind i'm not state focused um at the legislature i'm not a lobbyist but my understanding that bill has been amended to create um a similar um, tag structure to what they have in Wyoming, um, where you've got the regular draw and the special draw. And so for a, an additional fee, um, you're put into this special draw where like these 40% of tags, they sit in this pot. And so people who pay more money um, would then theoretically have a higher likelihood of drawing one of those tags. And so it's no longer a, a guaranteed outfitter set aside that tag is in its current form as amended. The legislature is far from over, and that could change. Um, and so I think that bill, um, you know, has been drastically improved. There's another bill that was proposed that would have um, made it so that Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks was not allowed to offer special permits 
So basically trophy, you know, limited entry type tags that are higher quality. We have, a, you know, more opportunity for mature age class animals, fewer, you know, hunters in the field kind of tags that would have made it, made it so Fish, Wives and Parks was not eligible to or able to um, have those, those special permits in units where wildlife were over the state agencies set objectives for, for populations. And that would have been a, a train wreck um, in the Missouri Breaks units because those are all over objective. Um, and also, like you don't control elk populations by killing the males, you do it by harvesting females. So it's not, also it's not consistent with just, you know, how you manage wildlife populations, like killing more bulls isn't gonna make a difference if you still have cows dropping calves on the ground every, every spring. But that bill was withdrawn by its sponsor, and so that was good. Um, there are some other bills, though, that are currently in play. Like one um, would change the makeup of the Fish, Wildlife, and Parks Commission to, or the Fishing Wildlife Commission to um, increase the number of commissioners, but then have a majority of commissioners who would would have to be large, have to be landowners, and so having landowner, landowners control the commission. And they make a whole range of decisions, right, that are not tied to private lands and, and a whole range of decisions that are tied to species other than game species. Like it's a really comprehensive, you know, board and what they do. So um, it seems uh, a bit crazy, I guess, to give um, one interest group control, controlling stake in the Fish and Wildlife Commission. But that's currently on the table. It hasn't, you know, I don't know what the status of it is. Um, and I know that there is another proposal that would give large landowners like 10 elk tags that I think are transferable, um, which right now we do not have transferable elk tags in the state of Montana. I think if you own a sectional land or greater, you get 10 elk tags, which um, I, I don't know the status of that as well. But yeah, there's a lot going on. Um, you know, I think there's definitely... Um, you know, tensions between landowners and the rank and file hunting and fishing community in the state of Montana. You know, we certainly, um, you know, TRCP, you know, would encourage people to sit down and try and come together and, and find solutions that can benefit both parties. I and mean, we certainly understand that, that landowners need to um, make a living and they need to be able to, you know, pay the bills, but also wildlife is a public resource. And, and how do you support landowners, um, their ability to, to deal with the hassle of wildlife, um, you know, getting in their haystacks and, and eating forage um, and, you know, breaking their fences and things like that. Um, how, how do we help them um, sort of deal with that in a way that, you know, financially benefits them while at the same time keeping wildlife a public resource? And that's a difficult thing to do, um, but it's really hard when there's a whole bunch of bills that are being shoved through um, that really haven't had a lot of public discourse. And I think it'd probably be um, advantageous for people to sit down and try and come to some consensus on some of this stuff and find solutions that everybody can live with versus having to duke this out in Helena. Yeah. So that's my non-involved understanding of what's going on in the Montana. <laughs> yeah, sorry, sorry, I kind of threw the monkey wrench in there. It's but... all right. I find it interesting and I've been following it a little bit. There was something that I was like, well, this is kind of concerning, you know? I mean, just, I, I haven't been paying super attention, but I've seen some mentions of it and like, ooh, that sounds odd, you know? Sounds like going a different direction. Isn't there, isn't there also something similar in Wyoming right now, too, uh, as, far as, as far as guide um, or outfitter permits? Yeah, I've seen some headlines on some of that. I think there's a proposal to increase prices too i got an email yeah, from yeah, a, i actually got an email yeah. from a, a guide that i i don't know subscribed to or something or an outfitter sort of asking me to weigh in i haven't been tracking it very closely though i mm. um it's on my periphery and again i'd be dangerous if i tried to provide <laughs> details <laughs> that's right we like being dangerous um can we uh, so you had made some notes kind of uh department of interior and, and i know um there's a there's a lot of things going on there right now um in kind of the the secretary of the interior um can you can you speak to the kind of what, what's going on there and maybe what the what the future holds as far as hunting and fishing is concerned sure um 
I folks have been watching the news. I'm sure you've seen that uh, Deb Holland from New Mexico's been nominated to be the next Secretary of the Interior, and and she's also poised to be the first Native American cabinet secretary in U.S. history. Um, you know, she she's from she's she's been in Congress um, representing a district in the state of New Mexico. Um, you know, for the past two years, and um, you know, and, and when she was nominated, um, you know, TRCP and a number of our partners, um, you know, reached out um, and, you know, you basically requested the opportunity to, to talk with, with the nominee, um, you know, about hunting and fishing issues and how, um, you know, we could work with her at the Department of the Interior. And, and she's been really receptive. Um, I, uh, you know, she's actually met with with TRCP several times now in the past few months, as well as other organizations, and um, has been very receptive to you know our feedback and and our um, and our interests, and and seems to be a, a pretty quick learner. I mean, every time that we've talked with her, um, you know, her knowledge of our issues is has increased, and so you know we support her confirmation and. And we want to work with her to to make sure that that hunters and anglers can continue to have a seat at the table um, at the Department of the Interior, and that that our interests are and the things we care about are a part of the decision making over there, right? And so as they're putting out proposals, um, making decisions, that that hunters and anglers have a seat at the table, and that um, and that we you know either benefit from or you know are not unduly harmed by any decisions, and so. Um, but that's that's the latest there, and and we look forward to working with her. Um, you know, I know that just back to you know we we'd already talked about thirty by thirty, but um, there's some specific priorities that you know the Biden administration has laid out that is going to really influence you know what the Interior Department works on. Um, you know, and those are addressing climate change. Um, as, as we talked about, you know, protecting 30% of, of lands and waters by 2030, but also racial equity. And I think, um, you know, you're going to see equitable access to public lands to be a part of the discussion at the Department of the Interior. Um, but, you know, just sort of diving in a little bit on the climate change front, I mean, a big part of this ties to energy development. And um, again, as we talked about earlier, you know, the Trump administration was very focused on oil and gas development and leasing. Um, with the executive order that came out from the president, it actually hit pause on any new leasing on oil and gas development until they can do a study of, of leasing practices. And so what a lease is, is basically a, an energy company um, expresses interest in purchasing the rights to develop federal lands for oil or gas development. And oil and gas development, and and then the federal agencies generally then have like an auction, a lease sale, which is if you've ever been to like a cattle auction or whatever, or a banquet <laughs> auction. I mean, it's like that where they auction off, you know, parcels for oil and gas development. That's been put on hold um, temporarily while they look at at those leasing practices. And I think, um, you know, I, looking at my crystal ball, right, a lot of that still needs to play out, what this process is going to look like. But there's some things that have been happening over the past few years that I think are going to get a hard look. Um, first off, there's a practice called non-competitive leasing, um, where, you know, these these companies or speculators will um, nominate like huge swaths of public land for leasing. Um, and then they won't sell at the auction. And then they can go in afterward and pick them up for $2 an acre. And mm -hmm. basically what they're doing is they're tying up federal lands for the purpose of development. And they're not even really paying um, you know, like a real market rate, you know, for those lands. And, um, and so I would expect that, you know, to be given a hard look. Also, there's a lot, there's lands that have, the US Geological Survey has done an, a, an analysis of like where oil and gas potential is. And so they know where high potential is. They know where moderate potential is for oil and gas development. But yet all the lands are on the table. So energy companies can lease up like low energy potential lands or places with negligible potential um, in order to sort of beef their portfolios and show that they've got a lot of lands in their holdings that they have the right to develop, which is a good thing, I think, in terms of showing your investors that you've got um, 
you know, like, like he's sure. got a, a strategy for continuing to grow. Um, but those lands don't really have much for oil and gas development potential. But when they, when they, when they, um, when they, when they buy a lease, you're basically tying up that land. And so it can't really be used for other purposes, especially if it's under winter range or under other sensitive habitats. Like, I mean, why are we leasing lands that don't really have energy development potential? And so I would expect that to get a hard look as well. Hmm. Um, and then on the flip side, you're going to see um, a big push for renewables development. And I mean, if anybody's, you know, driven around the West, there's some places where we're already seeing, you know, considerable, you know, wind turbine development as well as solar arrays. And I think, you know, that's something that you're going to see more of. And um, obviously we need to, um, you know, be transitioning sort of away from just, you know, being solely reliant on, on, on fossil fuels, right? I mean, long-term is something we need to be doing. Um, but at the same time, you know, renewable energy has impacts. Um, you know, I, I think if you put a bunch of wind turbines down on top of big game winter range, you're going to have similar impacts to doing that with oil and gas development. And mm. um, it's important that that those types of developments, you know, be done responsibly. And this is going to have an impact, right? If you hunt BLM land, if you fish BLM land and you enjoy those empty expanses where you can go glass up a buck or go hunt upland birds, um, you know, I, I, it's important that folks pay attention and, and to make sure that this stuff's cited in the right places and, and that it's done in a way that minimizes those impacts on the things we care about. So you mentioned in this equitable access, can you elaborate a little more on equitable access? Yeah, I mean, I think, and I'm, I'm not an expert on this, Kevin, um, but I mean, first off, if you look at the United States population as a whole, you know, it's, it's fairly diverse. You look at who you see on public lands, it's often less diverse, right? You see more people yes. out on white people out on public lands than you do people of color. And I, and I think it's in part um, because oftentimes, you know, public land access opportunities are removed from urban areas um, that, you know, people may not feel welcome on, on public lands. Um, and so I think that, you know, again, not being an expert on this issue, that um, there's going to be a hard look at how to provide opportunities to, um, you know, groups that, you know, maybe have been left behind in the past. And, and how can you provide close to home opportunities to access public lands? How can you make people feel more welcome on other public lands? And I think there's an opportunity there. Um, when you think about hunting and fishing, right? Um, you know, I know a lot of us like to load up the truck and drive halfway across the state and go on a big, giant, week-long um, expedition kind of hunt. But you know, that's that's in a lot of ways a privilege to be able to do that. And um, there's a lot of folks maybe don't have the money. They also maybe you know don't understand um, you know sort of how to even begin, right? And where to even begin. And and I think there's opportunity to. Um, you know, look around communities where there might be places where we could, you know, use the Land and Water Conservation Fund, for example, to purchase new public land, um, you know, and to provide, you know, and, and acquire some, some waterways too, right? Public, public lands around waterways and near urban communities to provide those urban fishing opportunities and, and, and to make, to lower those barriers of entry and so that um, more folks can get outside. And I think, you know, if you look at sort of the hunting and fishing community, um, like we're 3% non-white by race, we're 3% non-white by ethnicity, which is you know, way less diverse than the American public as a whole. And if we um, wanna remain relevant um, long-term, it's really important that you know, the hunting and fishing community, the face of the hunting and fishing community more closely resembles that of the, the face of, of the United States as a whole. And so, anything we can do to recruit new hunters and anglers um, of all backgrounds. I think uh, it's not only the right thing to do, um, but I think it's also in, in the best interest of the hunting and fishing community in terms of our, our long-term relevance um, in, 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 you know, in society as a whole. And it's also a good thing um, in, in many ways, right? Just to have more hunters and anglers out there and, and shooters um, you know, from different backgrounds. I think it just creates more support for our activities. And it's great to have people out there um, who enjoy, you know, this work. We're all 
connected by the fact that we like to hunt and fish, right? I mean, that's really what, you know, brings sportsmen and women together, and, and, and that's what it's, it should be. It's great until they're in your area, when you hike in during hunting season, <laughs> and you find some other people in there. <laughs> Herring and I have had some conversations. I, I mean, I get it in terms of overcrowding. Um, yeah. But yeah, yeah, I mean, the, the it's pretty grossly unrep underrepresented by proportion of the population, you know? Um, and, you know, sounds like something good for some whiskey and campfire chatter sometime. Yeah. So. Um, so one thing I had a, a note on, and we're, um, we're, we're getting close on time here, but, um, you had a bunch of notes and, and some, some things that are happening. I think one, you know, when, when it comes to, um, kind of these conservation issues that are always being brought up, right. It, it seems to be, um, especially with the public land and the leasing of public land, it's always, it's always like oil and gas always is like a, a big, you know, it's always something that we're talking about or, or um, it is always kind of an issue. Um, this one's kind of unique. Um, the the snake river and the in the dam on the snake river what like what are the chances that actually goes away well i you know sort of take a step back right so um you've got the columbia river system right which historically is the you know greatest pacific salmon resource in the world and um you know all the way up you know from the coastal mountains of oregon and washington to the heart of idaho um there's you know long forever been you know salmon coming up that river and, and spawning in those tributaries but you know with the construction of dams during the 20th century um you know we've we've seen um those those runs of salmon as well as ocean conditions and other things continuing to dwindle to a point where um you know if you look at the runs you know all the way up the snake river where they have to get past many dams um, you know, they're in trouble and there's a chance that, that they go extinct if something doesn't happen. And so the, for the last, I mean, geez, 25 years at least, right, there's been mm -hmm. um, a lot of talk about breaching the four lower Snake River dams as a way to um, allow those, um, you know, juvenile salmon to get downstream and the adult salmon to get upstream. Um, and it's sort of the way to, to save these, these salmon runs that go into Idaho. And um, there's a lot of interest at play, right? I mean, those, those dams provide, um, you know, water to irrigators. Um, there's uh, the Port of Lewiston is a seaport, right? And so barges can come all the way from the Pacific Ocean um, up to Lewiston, Idaho. And there's a lot of interest at play. However, um, you know, it's gotten to sort of a breaking point where um, there continues to be litigation. And there's uncertainty about what the courts might do. The Bonneville Power Administration is bleeding money. Um, and if something's not done um, to address this issue, there's it's a, it's a good chance that maybe a, a judge will decide the path forward. And, and instead of mm. um, just you know, sitting back and, and letting your fate be decided for you, um, Congressman Simpson from Idaho, who's a Republican, very well-respected member of Congress, um, over the past three years, held like over 300 meetings, um, trying to figure out a pathway forward um, for this that could keep everybody whole. And um, for example, you know, if if we're going to remove these dams, like we need to figure out a way to make sure that the irrigators still have water. And so, investing you know millions of dollars in in irrigation infrastructure. Um, if we're going to lose the electric power generation from the dams, you know, how do we invest you know, huge amounts of money into you know, generating power in other ways? Um, if we're going to lose um, the ability to, to ship barges all the way to, to Lewiston to move grain you know, down from the Palouse, how else can we do that? Well, let's invest in rail. And so what he's put forward is a really comprehensive infrastructure basically proposal that tries to address this issue across the board. And so nobody's left behind. And I think it's really, you know, the right way. And you look at the Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership and the way that we at TRCP works to solve, work to solve problems. It's really about trying to bring people together. And, and I think 
when you look at what, what Congressman Simpson's done here, I mean, I just can't think of a, a more admirable approach than trying to bring people together to solve this, this longstanding issue. Congressman Simpson has, has had you know, 300 meetings over three years to bring together the different stakeholders there, to try and address everybody's concerns, to make sure that the irrigators aren't left behind, to make sure that the shipping's taken care of, to make sure even that people who use the slack water from the reservoirs um, that they're even that they even have resources to sort of accommodate you know sort of changing out their boats and things like that to to use you know a running river um, for recreation and so he's really tried to to take care of everybody um, you know I think that this is a big lift I mean there's obviously a lot of interest in this area there's a lot of people who are really resistant to changing what they've done um, and so you know it's not a sure bet but I think. When you look at the way that, that, that Congressman Simpson's approached this by trying to sit down with people and make sure nobody's left behind, then you also look at the alternative, which inaction is inaction is not going to lead to the status quo. Inaction is going to lead to change um, that you get handed by a judge or somebody else, which is much less desirable than, than being at the table and making sure that you're like, all right, I'm going to suffer this way, and that, that they're there to... Um, to take care of those needs and to help make you whole moving forward. And so you've got a plan and you get resources. I mean, this is expensive. I think, you know, what is it? $33 billion. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, wow. it's a lot of money, but I mean, if you want to, I also got to say that, you know, 17 billion has been thrown down a hole um, already on salmon issues up there that, that isn't working. And so, um instead of is just, that like is that like the um like what what are they what have they done with that money that hasn't worked for for the salmon yeah i mean i it's all sorts of stuff like barging fish and mm -hmm. um like conveyor belts and things like I'm that. i'm not ex you know and, and improving hatcheries and doing all sorts of things i'm not an expert on those details mm -hmm. um but you know that they've they've been just dumping money at a problem in a way that is not fixing the root issue and the only way you're gonna the only, the only hope we have of um you know recovering the salmon's great sam idaho's great salmon runs is by breaching those four lower dams and the only way that the four lower dams are going to be breached is if the people who get the short end of the stick in that arrangement are taken care of to make sure that, that they don't get a short end of a stick, right? And that they're okay, mm -hmm. that they can continue to do what they want to do. And I think that's taking care of farmers and irrigators and, and transportation and also the communities of like the Tri-Cities and, and the community of Lewiston, Idaho. Well, Tri-Cities are in Washington, but like there's millions of dollars of investment money there to help, you know, um, you know, invest in those communities to, think, to ensure that they, you know, are, are revitalized or even become, you know, more vibrant than they are today. So there's just a lot there that um, it's pretty sweet in terms of a package. And I hope that I hope that people see that this is an opportunity and that by letting this go, they're putting themselves in a in, in a worse position because the status quo is not really an option. A judge is going to hand them something at some point that they don't. It's going to have them something different. It's going to be like this needs to change. And, and on what grounds does it would the um, courts have a say right is it on endangered species act like is that what it is yeah, yeah it's all endangered species issues so um are we going to hang out like early june this year up in missoula somewhere around there go for a hike i'd love to see you man it's uh you know i was just thinking the other day about you know the hunt expo in utah and how much fun that is to like get mm -hmm. together with everybody and um also shot show which didn't happen this year and, yeah um i mean that's i always love getting together with you guys and you know hanging out whether it's you know doing something or getting a beer or having breakfast or whatever and so it'd be great to get together uh this have summer a play date with our dogs i'd love that yeah mine's getting turned into a real terror now that he's four months old oh really <laughs> Yeah, he's all right. I mean, he's great. He's a good dog. He's just, you know, he's a pup, right? They, he's, uh, he's four months old, right? He's, he's four months yeah. old. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, uh, I think I'm going to put him for deer in, in Colorado this, for this fall too. So. Oh, you are? Um, Me too. Yeah. I'm looking at it. Friend and I are. Yeah. Okay. 
I can maybe give you They say advice. burn them. They say burn your points because uh, that's what they say anyway because of the, the <laughs> yeah, you may as well. structures down there. Yeah. May, are you gonna I'm going to heed that advice. Are you going to go archery or rifle? Probably rifle. Yeah. You know, this guy, I was talking to this other Kevin a few weeks ago. I think you know him. Um, that guy? Yeah, yeah. He was talking about tents and stuff. Well, what are you going to use turkey hunting? For a tent? Yeah. Hopefully a seek outside tent. That's my plan. I know I've got my seek outside backpack. Okay. <laughs> I'll follow up with you offline about that, Kevin. Uh, yeah. One of your I feel friends, like I feel I feel like there's an in, inside joke. He couldn't he couldn't sleep stand sleeping in your tents anymore. <laughs> I've had it forever. It works. Um but I get maybe I need to invest. <laughs> spend all my hard earned money on, on a new tent. I know someone who can help you. Just with in that. order just in order to maintain our friendship. Well, it's no worries, man. It's no worries, but it, it it is something I can just give you a hard time about all the time. <laughs> um, awesome, Joel. I I think there's many things on our list here that that we didn't get to. Um, and and I assume so. Last time we talked to was about was about a year ago. Um, I think you. Just got done turkey hunting, so good good luck with the turkeys again this spring. I'm sure you'll be chasing those around. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. Hopefully, I can get out with my dad. Um, not too far from here. I uh, I don't know. They get hunted pretty hard where I live in Western Montana, and they get pretty smart pretty fast. But mm. I always get out and usually manage to get one. Um, sometimes I'm lucky and I get two. But uh, I love turkey hunting. It's a good time. Sweet man. Well. Yeah, good luck with that and and hopefully yeah, hopefully we get to do this again sometime. Maybe we'll know more in in a couple months or or some big things happen. Um and and we can talk about those and and then maybe we all get the rendezvous in in June sometime. Yeah, that'd be great. And uh where where we met, man. That was where I met Joel. It is where we met. That was a long time ago now, too. Yeah, it was. Yep. It was just you and you and Angie at that point, right? Yes, it was. And we sat at this table, and there was this, I mean, everyone was, it was just like little tables around. I remember Dick Robertson stuff, you know, he, Dick was, I think, teaching Owen how to shoot a bow or something. I mean, can't think of a better, better person to learn. I remember uh, selling Angie a whole fistful of raffle tickets for that timber rifle when I was, Helping to volunteer for that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then then we were sitting at this table waiting for food and you know, um this guy by the name kind of a this guy by the name of Matt Ranella sits down across from us. And then this guy by the name of Steven sits down, you know, and Angie and I are like Holy cow, man. <laughs> you know? Because Steve was like the guest speaker there. So, yeah, he was. That was before he really. Uh, that was, became that was in a his big early deal. days, too, right? Yeah. Yeah, that was before he was like a big deal. He'd had that American Buffalo book out for a couple of years, and I don't know if he'd started the Mediator yet or not. Um, on At the time, was that Sportsman's Channel? But yeah, that was early on. That was good. That was a good time. That was a nice small little gathering, too. It was. You know, sometimes there's a. There's a I've met several people at that first gathering that I've communicated with consistently. Heck, I remember that first gathering, Munther gave the llama packing. I hunted with Munther last winter in Arizona, you know. Um, so did I. Oh, you did? Yeah, we had a staff retreat down in Arizona, and I, um, we ended up going out with him and some other folks to do a little quail hunting just for like a half day. But yeah. I got to spend a little time with Greg, and it's always good to see him. Yeah. Um, it's like a role model for how to like continue hunting fish well into your seventies. I know, I know. He gets after it. You know, you know. I aspire to do as well as him at that age. So, totally. 
He has some stories too. And some interestingly, interesting, strong opinions. And some interesting stories. <laughs> yeah, he's a lot of fun. Yeah. People would enjoy hearing the hearing Greg share the contents of his thoughts on hunting and fishing. Yeah, and he's hunted all over the West. Yeah, he told so. Yeah, so it was good times. I mean, some sometimes those small, like, not trying to everything as you get bigger. I mean, we've been having kind of one-on-ones here at SO. You know, I realize that we're now about the size of an NFL football team, you know, and everyone needs to kind of get on the same same path to know their part in the whole role of things. It's not quite as simple as when you're just a small little mom and pop. And like those early BHA gatherings gave you an opportunity to get to know people at a depth that maybe you don't, uh, the big ones now, when there's just so many people and so many events and stuff. Yeah, those were fun times. Yep. Definitely. I mean, I'm a, I know listeners can't see you right now, but the amount of sunshine behind you <laughs> makes me really envious. <laughs> uh the desert man gotta come to the desert you gotta spend spend winters in the desert yeah i know a lot of people do that mm-hmm. um i i enjoy ice fishing too much i guess at this point in my life <laughs> it's so much fun we had a big fish fry on sunday my dad actually came out he got he and his wife got vaccinated so they they came out i hadn't seen them in a long time um, they came out for a long weekend and we went ice fishing on Sunday and caught a bunch of perch and then fried it up for dinner. Mm. It's a good time. You guys got a bunch of ice? We got a ton of ice. There must have been, I don't know, 14 inches on the lake. And uh, it's actually one of the better ice years we've had. And I think it's because we didn't have a lot of early fall snow, but the temperatures in those lakes has been getting cold. And so the snow insulates, right? Um, mm-hmm. And so without that snow, it built a really good foundation. And then we had um, just a few weeks ago, some really nasty weather, you know, like negative 10 kind of weather. Like I know a lot of the country got real cold, um, but it, it was building some serious ice. Some ice and yeah. Uh, yeah, but it's fun. I mean, you set a couple, you set a tip up and then you fish for perch and, you, you, by the time you're done, you you know you've got I don't know ten or fifteen keepers on the ice, and you go flame them up and do like a cornmeal batter and throw them in some hot oil, and it's hard to beat. Yeah. Yep. Guys should come up and do it. Uh, you, should, you should come down and get a tan. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. I spent I spent too much time in in Wisconsin ice fishing growing up. That's uh. Yeah. Not your thing, huh? <laughs> no, no, I'm a, no, I'm a fair weather sunshine guy. I can tell by that bronze and tan you've got there. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> well, awesome, man. Thanks you for uh, joining us and um, letting us know what all is going on in conservation world and what to expect. Different. Yeah, the take home is it's messy. Um, and we're in a period of transition, but priorities are taking shape. And, um, you know, TRCP is all about rolling up our sleeves and sitting down and finding opportunities that fit our mission with whoever's in charge. And um, there's definitely a lot of conservation opportunity with this administration. That's good to hear. Cool. Do you know, just one quick question. Like the previous administration rolled back a lot of lands. Do you know what's like going to happen? Escalante, Bears Ears, that kind of stuff. Is it going to stay rolled back? Are they going to evaluate it differently or is it just not even been talked about? I would expect those protections to be reinstated. You would? Yes, I think that will happen. Do you, do you think there's a, there's a, do you think we're setting a crazy precedent with that in that then every year? It's just going to be the reduction and increase of bears ears. Like every every administration change, 
to be like, all right, well, I went in and then to make it smaller again. This year we're gonna make it bigger. Next year we're gonna make it smaller. And that's a fair question, Dennis. I um, and we're not involved in those two monuments. Sure. Um, but I think it's pretty. I would be surprised if they aren't reinstated. I think mm -hmm. the question as to whether or not they can be legally reduced by a subsequent president is still outstanding. You know, I know that there's um, litigation currently on the Trump um, reductions of those two monuments that has not been ruled upon. Um, and so the legality of those actions is really still undetermined. Um, and I would imagine that that might become moot if the if Trump's decision is reversed. But mm -hmm. it's not something that we're focused on. Um, but it's definitely, I know, a priority for the tribes down there as well as the environmental community and mm -hmm. um, a top priority. And so I would be surprised if um, if it's not reversed and those protections reinstated and those boundaries um, you know, are at least reinstated to the level in which they were under hmm. Obama. Awesome. Cool, man. Thanks. Thanks, Joel. Really yeah, appreciate nice it. Yeah, nice to see you guys. Yeah, it was yeah. fun. Take care. Uh, yeah, you too, man. You have a good day.